it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Thursday, January 5th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, then around the clock for free as a podcast. On demand, no charge, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. You can also check out FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Got extra content there as well. Here's our lineup. Josh Holmes will be here later on this hour. Josh Crassauer in the next hour. His political analysis on the speaker battle, which we'll get to here in a second, plus a few other political developments. Jessica Tarloff, our friend. On the left, co-host of The Five, she'll be here in our final hour just after 5 p.m. Eastern time here today. If you don't know me, you're new to the program here in the new year, glad that you are with us. Hope that you're enjoying the show. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Let's keep growing together. I'm the political editor at townhall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor, and I am, I wouldn't say pleased, but eager to bring you this Fox News alert. It kind of feels like Groundhog Day here on the program in 2023. Is it Tuesday? Is it Wednesday? I just said it was Thursday, but we have just seen another vote, another ballot in the speaker battle on the House floor. And the results, this was now ballot number seven, I believe. No, ballot number eight (laughs) that just concluded. We're heading toward number nine. Ballot number eight was exactly the same in terms of the final count as ballot seven and ballot six and ballot five and ballot four. Not a single change in terms of the outcome. 212 votes for the Democrat, Hakeem Jeffries, unanimous among the Democrats. 201 votes for Kevin McCarthy on the Republican side. 20 votes for someone else other than McCarthy. And a few of those like changed a little bit at the margins, but no meaningful change there in the exact same number, 20 voting for someone else. And then one voting present who's a Republican member from Indiana. So, so far today, they've held two of these ballots. Yesterday, during our show, before and during our show, they held three of them. And there has not been a single vote that has moved in any of them. So that's where things stand right now. What the McCarthy people are saying and their position on this, you could call it spin, is that their goal today is to not lose anyone. Like, okay, well, they've done that, right? Mission accomplished, Kevin. He's still at 201, down from 203 on the first ballot on Tuesday. But at least over the last two days, he hasn't lost any support. Okay. You know, fine. Congratulations, I guess. But not losing anyone doesn't really help because you have to win. Someone has to win. To elect a speaker, you have to get to a majority. If you're not building, getting closer, then what are you doing? 
Now, the argument here is there are serious conversations underway. Negotiations last night that apparently continued today. There have been a few little arguments bubbling up into public view about whether people should be leaking this stuff and what they're discussing. But the conversations are happening. There was one report that Chip Roy from Texas, who's not one of these like dead enders who will never vote yes for Kevin McCarthy. There are some people I think would be happy to just watch this burn on and on. Chip Roy isn't one of them. He's trying to get certain specific concessions. He allegedly said he thinks he could get 10 people in his group to then vote for McCarthy if they get these concessions, which reportedly they're kind of close to. Now, that would be progress, but it also wouldn't be enough. So it does not appear that we are really much closer and the progress isn't actually tangible yet. I was sort of interested today on the first vote, starting just after noon Eastern time, would there be any movement? Would McCarthy lose ground? He did not. Would any of the holdouts flip over because of some of these concessions that McCarthy has agreed to? The answer to that, at least so far, has also been no. Nothing. No movement at all. Now you've got rank-and-file Republican members, McCarthy supporters. They want to know what the hell is going on. What is McCarthy agreeing to behind these closed doors? So there's a report that they might have a closed-door meeting, all the Republicans together, to sort of have a team update of what's being discussed. So I just want to say a couple of things here. I've made most of my points already about, you know, what is the point of this? What is the goal? If you don't want McCarthy, who's the alternative that can actually win? Is there a game plan that's viable? All of those points, all of those questions remain completely intact. None of that has changed. I could just, like, go back and, like, rewind yesterday's show or the day before, just hit play and say the exact same thing. Instead of doing that, though, because I've said my piece on it, at least for now, I will make two points. One on these alleged concessions that are being made and the implications of them, if they get agreed to and if they then lead to a McCarthy speakership or whoever might end up, you know, winning this thing at some point. You're going to have to have a speaker at some point. But that actually is where I want to start here before I get to the concessions and in the weeds a little bit. I am not someone who is just, you know, gasping for air at the horror of a lack of a Speaker of the House and therefore no functioning House. It's, what, the 5th of January. This is the third day of what would have been the Republican majority. And they probably would have passed a few bills that I like. Dan Crenshaw made some news here on this show yesterday in that interview, full of fireworks. He said, I believe that H.R. 1, the first bill that they were going to tee up, was to defund the new 87,000 IRS agents, the doubling of the IRS. They were going to defund that. Seems like a pretty good idea to me. That was the uh, Build Back Better mini bill, the supposed Inflation Reduction Act that the Democrats passed, one of the most unpopular provisions. That's going to hammer small businesses, middle class people, working class people. That'd be a nice thing to have already shot over to the Senate and have the Democrats explain why they're unwilling to do it. Going to bat for a big, more muscular IRS. But that's not where we are. The members aren't even sworn in in the House yet because there's no speaker. And there's a sequence that has to be followed. At some point, it's going to become a problem. But I'm not there yet. I'm not 
traumatized by this. I'm not screaming about how this is a huge risk to the country. It's a national security threat. Looking for the smelling salts. Sort of glancing around for the fainting couch. I'm not really there. In fact, as someone who kind of views the Republican House, the whole point of it is to just kind of stop the Democrats from their one-party rule from the last two years. Whether they do it proactively or passively, I don't really care that much, at least at this point. And there's like a little bit of a thrill to this, and if you're a political nerd, it's like, oh, there's all this drama, and every few hours they go down the whole roll and everyone stands up and shouts their vote or whatever. There's some interest there. And just as an ideological conservative who is fine generally with the government mostly doing nothing and kind of doing the bare minimum, which they aren't even doing here yet, like I'm not overly offended by all of this. I am offended by stupid, pointless nihilism. And I say that, as I've now underscored several times this week, as not a grand fan of Kevin McCarthy and his leadership. Like, if you could point to someone else who was viable and would be potentially better, I'm very much open to that. But that isn't the case. And here we are awaiting ballot number nine. For what? At some point, I don't think this is doing any sort of lasting damage yet. I do think, as I've said, at some point, normie voters, normal people start to say, okay, this is an embarrassment The Republicans are embarrassing themselves. Why give them power? They can't even do this. Especially if this whole mentality bleeds over into the rest of the Congress for the next two years and the dysfunction becomes a big recurring theme. I don't think that is helpful. Now, some of these Republicans don't care. They don't care about the brand of the party. They don't care about the functioning of the government. They don't care about any of it. They're in their safe districts or in Lauren Boebert's case, not so safe. She almost lost. I guess she learned no lessons there. She was on Hannity last night. Sean gave her a very hard time. There was some interrupting, but she also had nothing. She brought nothing to that interview about what concretely she wants. That's what bothers me. Now, if Chip Roy and his crew, they're able to get some concessions, all right, that's something. Fine. We can argue about whether they're good things or not, but you know, at least you're trying to move or build towards something. I can understand that. I can potentially respect that it's the dead enders that i refer to and there's a handful of them it's just performative it's selfish self-aggrandizing they like i just have no time for it it's gross and eventually will become a problem for the party you might not like the party but there are two alternatives in this country and i'm not interested in more power going back to the other party we've seen what they do when they have it i don't want that And if the other party, the Republican Party, is going to get into power and just self-immolate, then that helps the Democrats. I'm not interested in that. Now, let's talk about some of these concessions that are reportedly on the table and being discussed. Politico had a big report about it earlier this morning. There's a number of them, a vote on term limits. There's also been this non-congressional agreement between two outside groups that could be significant when it comes to Republican primaries in the future, CLF, what is that, the uh, the Conservative Leadership Fund and the Club for Growth, that could end up being somewhat constructive here, although 
I also have questions about that agreement. That's so far in the weeds, we're not going to get into it. There's also rules committee seats for Freedom Caucus members. They want a certain number. That's being negotiated on the rules committee. I mentioned the vote on term limits. Here are the ones that I think are interesting and potentially problematic. One of the concessions that these guys are asking for, and apparently they've been given, so many of their concessions that they've demanded have been granted. That's the thing, and it just keeps going and going. McCarthy and these people keep saying yes to them. It's like not good enough. They want to have what's called a motion to vacate that can be triggered by a single member of the House, meaning a single member of the House of Representatives can get up and on their own require a motion to vacate, which is a vote of the whole House on whether or not to retain the Speaker of the House. So, like, basically, vote of no confidence votes on the Speaker whenever someone feels like it. And I guess these backbenchers, these holdouts, the McCarthy mutiny guys, whatever you want to call them, they feel like any one of them, they want to have that flex to get up and McCarthy cuts a deal that they don't like. They rush to the floor and force a vote on his speakership every time. I don't think that's going to be good. I don't think that's going to be a functional House of Representatives. I don't know how that works in terms of governance. But it's not like only Freedom Caucus right-wingers could then use that tool. The squad could use that tool. Democrats, you're just handing power to Democrats to gum up the works. One of the advantages of having the House majority is you control the floor. You control the agenda. That's what Pelosi was so good at. If you now have this, you could just like Ilhan Omar can roll in one day and be like, "Eh, let's waste some time. Let's force a vote on this. And it's only her. Like, it could be any single member. I don't know how that's productive, but that's one of the big demands that they've made. And McCarthy said yes, apparently. The other one is a change to the appropriations process, which I'm totally in favor of. The omnibus, which we talked about at the end of last year, was a disgrace. The process, pathetic. If we can get back to something resembling normal order, regular order, I'm all for it. One thing that's interesting, though, is they're asking for in this concession what's known as an open rule, which allows floor amendments to be offered by any lawmaker. Openness, transparency, you know, bottom up, that could be good, but be careful what you wish for, because now Democrats could use that, too. Under the open rule, just flooding amendments with all this stuff that could cause a lot of very uncomfortable votes for the Republicans which generally a disciplined, functional House majority seeks to limit. Pelosi and leadership had a little bit of trouble at the beginning of last Congress with this on motions to, it wasn't motions to adjourn, but motions to recommit, I believe is the term, where Republicans actually won a couple of them. Then Pelosi lowered the boom on her caucus. She said, we have to vote against every single one of these or else the Republicans win back some of the control of the floor. The Democrats got it and got rid of that. They started working together. What the Republicans are now considering doing is handing away more power to the Democrats on this stuff when it comes to amendments to virtually any bill. So I know that the Freedom Caucus people feel like they are doing this in furtherance of conservative goals, but these tools won't only be available to them and could very well end up empowering the minority party, the Democratic Party, to wreak a lot of havoc and cause a lot of political headaches for the Republicans. So, again, it's be careful what you wish for.
And then even if you wish for it, and leadership says yes to it so we can get a Speaker of the House, someone, at some point you have to say yes. And it seems like we are not close to the yes moment yet. So the speeches have now begun for ballot number nine. I don't expect any changes. Who knows? We'll be watching it, but the ninth ballot on day three is just getting going with the nominating speeches right now. (laughs) Groundhog Day. And the band plays on. Something that I said yesterday, maybe the day before, maybe tomorrow. We'll see. It's the Guy Benson Show. We're just getting started. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you here. So there's some movement on the immigration front, the border crisis. President Biden gave some remarks today addressing the issue that he has caused. His comments were mostly useless, I would say. But I guess he's going to go down to El Paso and see some of this for himself, his handiwork. I am very skeptical this is going to help, that he'll really see the truth or listen to people who will tell him the real truth. But I guess hope springs eternal. He's done this. This is his fault. This crisis is on him. They've announced some policy changes as well. Bill Malugin on Twitter earlier reported the Biden administration announces it will begin expelling Cubans, Nicaraguans, Haitians who cross into the U.S. illegally between ports of entry, but will also admit 30,000 pre-approved migrants per month into the U.S. from those three countries via mass parole, allowing them to work in the U.S. for two years. By the way, if you think it's really just temporary and then everyone will leave, I mean, come on. He said the administration did this with Venezuelans late last year as well. He said people turning themselves in from Venezuela as a result dropped significantly, but the number of known gotaways has skyrocketed. So the new policy will almost certainly reduce recorded monthly border crossings, because these nationalities are crossing in massive numbers. However, migrants not eligible for the parole will have no incentive to turn themselves in now and will evade as gotaways, and therefore gotaways, gotaways rather, will go up higher and higher. That's the likely outcome, according to Malugin. We're watching that story as well on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here with all of you on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, free podcast every day. Thanks for listening. Josh Holmes is with us, founding partner of Calvary LLC, co-host of the Ruthless Podcast, longtime Republican aide, operative strategist. And Josh, happy new year. It's good to have you. 
Happy New Year, Guy. Great to be here with you. Well, just everything's going great, I would say, in the new Republican majority. They've gotten a lot done. Uh, it's been it's been functional. It's been a fabulous first impression of the country. Can't wait to see all the bills they're going to continue passing here. Uh, I believe they're about to start ballot number nine. Uh, there's one more nominating speech happening right now. Matt Rosendale of Montana is very angrily nominating Byron Donalds uh, again. And I don't know why we would expect a different outcome than we saw in ballots four, five, six, seven or eight. But I guess they're going to vote again. Are we going to do like three failed ballots and then adjourn like we did the last two days? Like, what is this? Well, it feels like it. I mean, I don't know how anybody can predict what's ultimately going to happen. You know, the irony of this guy and 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 look, I know everybody's got sort of an ideological different point of view uh, on the conservative side about what ought to happen. But none of this is ideological per se. But but the irony to this for me is if you look at exit polls. Republicans won the debate over issues in ideology going away. Everybody believed that Republicans were right about the Biden administration in terms of inflation, about the impact on the economy, on your day-to-day checkbook. They believed that the Biden administration was actually uh, not great on crime, that they had absolutely no idea what they were doing on the border, and that contributed to fentanyl crises and human trafficking and humanitarian crises at the border. I mean, we won that policy debate. The problem ultimately is if you look at like suburban America, and Pennsylvania has always been a good example of this to me, is that they won all of those debates with 70 percent plus, yet they didn't vote Republican. And the reason they didn't vote Republican is precisely what you're seeing happen on the House floor right now. They don't want crazy. People are tired of crazy. And the center right of this country, which makes up a majority governing coalition that gives you the capability of, of real conservative change in this country is just absolutely tired of this stuff. On the other hand, you have people. So it's it's been very interesting to watch like my Twitter feed. I really follow a wide array of people, including some folks on the left, but like center right coalition from squishy rhino moderates. And I'm kind of close to that category, not quite all the way to hardcore right wing or super Trumpy MAGA. Like, it's kind of all over the map of how people are reacting to this. Some people are cheering on these holdouts. Others who you might expect would be angrily are not. Like, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greene coalition, I guess, in this case. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of frustration and anger. And then some people just sort of loving watching everything burn because I feel like it deserves to burn. And then other people kind of laughing it off for now, saying, hey, it's not that big of a deal. I kind of agree with that. I was saying that earlier. It's not that big of a deal yet. I mean, we're all going to like we'll survive as a country without a speaker of the House for a couple of days. It's not that much of a crisis. But, you know, at some point, the mentality starts to seep in among normal voters that Republicans are just not to be trusted with power because they're nuts. And and at least at the federal level, like we saw that dichotomy in the election. Governors, all every single Republican governor won, every single one. And then at the federal level, it was much spottier because of certain candidates, certain dynamics, ballot splitting, ticket splitting. There was a sense among a lot of independent sort of middle ground voters that they did not want to entrust the Republican Party with more power in Washington, D.C. And 
if this is a preview of things to come, what we're watching out, you know, play out literally right now over the next two years, my fear is, and you never know, presidential year, someone at the top of the ticket, dynamics change awfully quickly. But if there's a, a sense that really takes hold, that Republicans aren't to be trusted with power because ultimately they're dysfunctional and unserious and have too much of a crazy strain, that is not helpful unless you're a Democrat, in which case it's very helpful. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the what they've done to great success. And by they, I mean, Democrats have done to great success is, tr- is try to underplay their failures to lead this country, of which there are many, and overplay the unrelatability of today's Republican Party. And they point out a few uh, key examples of that. I mean, look, ultimately, this is a people business, right? I mean, you have to get votes from people in order to win elections, in order to govern this country. And if you're entirely unrelatable to your average American, democracy is a pretty tough deal for you, right? And I I think that's the ultimate problem. I kind of agree with you, Guy, in that, ah, is it that big a deal in the grand scheme of things? Because, you know, ultimately, uh, the policy is what what makes a a lot of difference. And if we spend a week arguing about this stuff, what difference does it make? But I think if you take a step back and you look at how easily the Republican Party has been branded over the last two years in particular, as a sort of crazy, out-of-touch, unrelatable party, while Democrats are running the country literally into the ground with with just like horrible economic policies, open borders, crime rampant, everything else, and then people bought that argument, then you got to express some concern over it, right? You can't you can't just ignore the fact that. Making a clown out of yourself in public for a, a calendar week, while everybody already has suspicions that you actually may be a clown, does have have some impact electorally. And by the way, just on that score, I see now this is something new. So Rosendale just gave a very long nominating speech for Byron Donalds, where he was ranting and raving and, and raising his voice and all of that. And he got a standing ovation from the holdouts. And then typically, which we've seen now for the last couple of rounds over the last two days, you then move to a vote and you've got three people nominated. And then we kind of know what the score is going to be, 212, 201, 20 and one. Like that's what it's been now since yesterday. Four, five, six, seven, eight ballot. Same exact results. But now Lauren Boebert of Colorado, who I will just remind folks, came within a whisker of losing her heavily Republican district Frankly, because of her conduct and her antics as a member of Congress, uh, she barely got through, uh, aided by Kevin McCarthy's money, by the way. She is now down on the floor giving another speech. I guess she is nominating someone else. So this will now be a fourth official nomination. She's doing her own nomination now for a guy called Kevin Hearn, uh, who's a congressman-elect. I believe a McCarthy supporter in all of this, but she's giving her own long speech now nominating a fourth person. And I just come back to the question that I have been asking for three days. What is the point of this? I'm not a big McCarthy guy. You might be. I don't know, Josh. I'm not a big McCarthy guy. What is the point of any of this? And maybe more importantly at this stage, what is the off-ramp? Because we're stuck in this sort of bizarre cycle here, which is getting us collectively nowhere. No, I, look, there isn't a disagreement on policy 
or how the House should conduct itself that is meaningful in this discussion, right? There are people like Chip Roy of Texas who have, you know, they've, he's been in and around government for 20, 25 years. I've worked with him back in the mid-2000s in the United States Senate. So, I mean, he knows procedurally a lot of pieces of the puzzle that he wants concessions from leadership upon, some of which are reasonable, others are not. But but he's fighting for an ultimate goal there. And then you have the Laura Bovitz of the world, right? And ultimately, what I would say to conservatives that are watching all of this, if you think that people like Laura Bovitz are holding your your flag up, you're, you're, you're mistaken. Because if you want any sort of accountability out of the Biden administration – when it comes to you know the withdrawal of Afghanistan, for example, or the Inflation Reduction Act and how that did the exact opposite, or uh, Hunter Biden, any of those things. The only way that you get to that – and by the way, McCarthy's committed to all of those things – but the only way you get to any of that is that you constitute a house in a way that proceeds and investigates and has a serious ability to ask questions and get answers – and thus far, what we've seen out of this week has undermined that at every turn, not the least of which is that nobody's even sworn into the darn House. I mean, nobody's even a member of Congress at this point. They can't, they're just sitting here voting ad nauseum uh, over and over again without any uh, people's business getting done at all. The voting is now underway. Boebert had her say again. She nominated a fourth person. So I guess, yeah, the voting is underway. McCarthy's got to vote. Jeffries has two votes and we're off again. And I feel pretty confident what the final score is going to be on ballot number nine. This would be one of the longest in history. In fact, I had just seen, let me pull up Steve Kornacki over at NBC had a little historical note on this. Now that they're on the ninth ballot, this is now tied for the eighth longest speaker election in history, tying 1923's vote that ended with, uh, we all know him, household name Frederick Gillett. (laughs) Winning on the ninth ballot, I think that they're going to go past that. This could go on potentially for days. And, you know, Josh, I guess they'll get a speaker at some point, one way or another, and it might be extremely ugly. If it ends up being Kevin McCarthy, I can't really underscore how weak of a speaker he will be. And or really anyone that that, that's the issue here for me. This seems like an ungovernable group of people who don't in just a small group of them, but enough of them. They don't want to be governed. They don't want to be led, which you might say, hell yeah, stick it to the establishment. But if what's the point then of trying to go and win elections if you aren't going to even allow yourself an opportunity to govern? And when there are votes on bills that will never perfectly satisfy everyone and yet are important or at least incremental progress or you know, marginally better than what the Democrats or even dramatically better than when, what the Democrats would have done if they had the power. Like at some point you have to do those things. And I am worried that we could see not just a squandered two years, but a humiliatingly squandered two years. Well, it, it, this is the great dichotomy between stated conservatism and actual conservatism. As somebody who spent 20 years in and around this kind of stuff, I, let me give you two examples, right? There, there are two, really only two bills that absolutely have to pass Congress in any calendar year. One is an appropriations bill that keeps the lights on, your Social Security checks flowing, and like the basic functions of government, like defense, rolling. And the other is, is a debt ceiling when it's necessary. 
because you default on your credit, all of a sudden the, the markets collapse and, and people with 401ks entirely evaporate. Like those two things need to happen. What happens when you have a united Republican governance as we had in like a 2011, for example, is that you have Republicans by and large with the ability to, to drive a hard bargain with unity and in a position that Democrats have to negotiate with. If you can't pass a funding bill or a debt ceiling out of the House of Representatives without Democratic votes, if you can't do that, the cost of admission for each Democratic vote is exponential. If it costs mm -hmm. you 10 votes, it's a couple of billion dollars. If it costs you 20 votes, we're talking $40 billion. If it talk, costs you 30, 40 votes, if, if the majority of your conference can't keep the lights on in the government, it's going to cost you $500 billion in order to get that done. And that's a non-negotiable thing. You have to do that. So Which only, by the way, further infuriates the base that already feels like the establishment betrays them. And it's just like this this spiral, right? Because the, the same people will fundraise off the same outrage, hoping that people don't fully understand what the dynamics are that are driving some of these outcomes. And I, we're getting ahead of ourselves. It might not come to this. But based on the first couple of days, the conversation we're having is not an unreasonable one. Well, they're the ones that cost you $500 billion in taxpayer dollars, right? I mean, if you end up with a united government, a united Republican front in the House of Representatives, you can actually write a pretty conservative funding bill, one that you know not everybody's going to agree with, but one that sticks within our means, certainly, and is far better than anything a Democrat would write. But the minute the, that, that you have defections out of principle, quote-unquote, then you open up that to billions of dollars of extraneous Green New Deal type nonsense. Well, and, and the idea, we Josh, just to years. jump in here, the, the idea that there's going to be Republican, this is my fundamental worry, that there will be any Republican unity for the next two years after this performance, which is still ongoing, is, I think, an open question and opens the can of worms that you're describing. Very quickly, Josh, a minute left. Over in the other chamber, your longtime boss, Mitch McConnell, he's the Republican leader. He was with the president down in Kentucky touting the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I know that angered some conservatives yesterday, but McConnell has just become the longest serving Senate leader, I believe, ever uh, as of this week. The left hates him. I understand why the left hates him. He's an effective conservative leader. The right elements of the right absolutely hate him, too, for other reasons. Just give us maybe a, a minute, like the elevator pitch for Mitch McConnell in your, in your yeah, well, mind. It, it, it's a heck of a, an accomplishment to be able to sit at the top of your conference through all the iterations of you know, Bush and Obama and Trump and you know, now into Biden and all the machinations and differences of the political parties over the years. But look, I, you know, the, 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 the thing you're talking about lately is a perfect example. Um, it, the, the reason he appeared with Biden in Kentucky, which the Kentucky state legislature unanimously passed a resolution praising him for, is because they fixed a, a problem that had been lasting for 30 years with the Brent Spence Bridge, which if you live in northern Kentucky or Ohio, man, you know exactly what it is that I'm talking about. This is like a, one of the most supreme problems we've had in the center of our country forever, and it seemed impossible to do, and they got it done, right? And that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about, Guy, when it, it's, you have to draw hard ideological lines 
as a as a partisan member. Yeah, and then like pick Congress. your fights and then have the fights and win and be effective. You might not love what McConnell's effective at doing, but he is effective. That there's no question about that, which is why I think some people really loathe him, actually, and other people admire him, such as myself, and I know my guest as well, Josh Holmes, founding partner, Calvary LLC, the Ruthless Podcast. We recommend it. Josh, let's talk again very soon. Happy New Year. You got it. Happy New Year, guy. The Guy Benson Show is back after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back. We were just talking about President Biden visiting Kentucky yesterday. And during his speech, he had something interesting to say. I don't quite understand any of this, but maybe you will. Cut 27. I've traveled over 140 countries around the world. As I was, I'll paraphrase the phrase in my own neighborhood. The rest of the countries, the world's not a patch on our genes. If we do what we want to do, we need to do. The rest of the countries in the world are not a patch in our genes if we do what we want to do when we need to do. Okay. Well said, Mr. President, as usual. Meanwhile, his vice president was responsible for some of the swearing in of senators on Capitol Hill this week, and she had another classic Veep moment. Cut 28. Please raise your right hand and repeat after. Well, not don't repeat after me, but, but do take this seriously. <laughs> And then the the chuckle. Please take this seriously. I wish we could take you seriously, Madam Vice President. Meanwhile, the ninth ballot has already failed. Seven Republican no votes already and counting for Kevin McCarthy. So what's next? Maybe an adjournment? It's Groundhog Day on The Guy Benson Show. Another hour coming up. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show brand new hour is here on the guy benson show on this thursday thank you for listening guy is our website podcast is free of charge every day at guy benson show on twitter and instagram you can follow us there fox news alert The Dow way down today, falling 340 points, closing out at 32,929. With us now, Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News contributor. Josh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, guy. Not the happiest New Year for Kevin McCarthy. It's round nine underway of balloting, and it's already failed. It's not over. Current vote totals are McCarthy 106, Hakeem Jeffries 101, others 11. And, you know, that's well past the threshold, so it'll fail again, probably by roughly the same margin. And I guess if we continue with the pattern that we've seen, there'll be maybe an adjournment. Maybe there'll be a Republican meeting at some point. The negotiations continue. I just don't really see what the end game here looks like. And I think part of the problem is no one knows. It's not like I'm sitting here or you're sitting here being a bad analyst, a bad commentator. The, the principals involved in this don't know where this is going uh, and clearly haven't for quite some time. I just wonder what you make of it right now. Yeah, Guy, what, what, what a crazy start to the new year. Um, look, it, it, it feels like, and I've talked to a lot of folks involved in this mess, there hasn't been a whole lot of strategy on either side on the Republican Party. Uh, you know, it, 
the McCarthy folks were, were quite optimistic they weren't going to lose 20 votes uh, at the outset of this process. And they clearly there were more defections than they expected. Well, and by the way, can I just jump in? Can I just jump yeah. in? That's a problem, too. So McCarthy and his crew expected to win like 40 or 50 House seats in the fall. That was their expectation based on their information, their polling. They were telling folks, you know, big, huge win. They had a big party and a speech ready to go early on election night. They were wrong about that, obviously. It was just a handful of seats that Republicans were able to win to barely grasp a majority, which is clearly not a functional one yet, if it'll ever be. That was a big miss on expectations. And if McCarthy in his first act as speaker or would-be speaker got – badly wrong the number of people who were going to vote against him to me that's also like setting aside the intransigence of these people and i have problems with it like i think that's also an indictment of team mccarthy i think it has to be said that that's absolutely right guy and i feel like that part of it hasn't been 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 as deeply reported uh look newt gingrich stepped aside in 98 after uh, missing expectations when it came to the house uh a lot of times when you when you are the leader and you just don't uh, live up to expectations, you know, there is a, a push for an alternative. And McCarthy has sort of run into this brick wall. There are, of course, are these, these, these you know, nihilistic holdouts that we're seeing in these vote after vote after vote. And I think their tactics are also misguided. But look, McCarthy, uh, if he kills out day after day after day, and he's not making any inroads, despite making some, but I would, I would consider some pretty significant concessions that could undermine his speakership from the beginning, he's going to also have to start thinking about, is it good for the institution to keep running and running and running ballot after ballot without making any progress? Well, there however, also- though, yeah, you're going to say there's an alternative. Please finish that sentence. Yeah, I mean, look... Steve Scalise is a, a very able deputy. He is clearly not like floating his name out there for obvious reasons, but it's not like there's only one potential uh, speaker uh, that, that's in that caucus. And there's going to come a point, I don't know when it's going to happen, if McCarthy can't make any inroads with these rebels, or if, you know, if, 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 it's so, if it so weakens his position, you know, like one of the ideas being floated by, by that, that, that looks like a concession seriously being considered is that it would just take one Republican to vacate the speakership. We could be doing this week after week after week, even if McCarthy does become speaker at some point. So, you know, McCarthy enters this even if he wins the speakership in a very, very weakened position. And look, I, you know, Scalise is someone who's nationally known, the awful shooting that he recovered from, uh, you know, and and he's served as a loyal deputy to, to McCarthy. A lot of members like him. I don't know if he could win over every single one of these these holdouts, but I think he would have a good chance to do that would if he? offered the opportunity. Are, are you are you sure? Like, do you think he could win even half of them over? That that's my thing. I don't know. They might say no. He's McCarthy's deputy. He's part of the swampy leadership. I don't know if Scalise would do the trick. And if you're Scalise, do you want to? look like you're knifing McCarthy in the back to then all of a sudden get your name out there and then also fail. Well, you don't want, <laughs> that, you don't want to put your name out there. That's why his name has not come up for a vote. He, he's playing his cards, I think, very wisely. Um, but if you play this out, guy, you know, there's going to be a point where the rebels' cap, political capital is expended entirely on getting a scalp, getting Kevin McCarthy's head on a platter. And once they do that, I mean, they're not going to have much political capital left to just continue this indefinitely. So, you know, look, I, I but think... what capital do they have? Like what? Why would they care? Some of them, I think, are acting in some good faith. Some of them just aren't. 
they don't they don't seem to care at all whether they have the capital or not they have the the raw power at least for now and it only takes five of them right i mean that's that's the math here that i i look if if scalise parachuting in here was a solution and maybe it will be i'd be saying go for it i like steve scalise i know him a little bit i think he's a good guy i think he'd be fine but I'm just not convinced that anything other than more dysfunction and humiliation than befalls him. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not convinced of that either, but I do think that he – I do know that he has better personal relationships with some of these holdouts. Not all of them, but some of them uh, that could be a bridge uh, in the future. And We're not at that point yet, clearly. But Kevin, we're looking at literally, what, eight votes now, and McCarthy has not – uh, expanded his numbers. He has not, Nine, even with yeah. the concessions he's made, right? He's not improved on his fortune. So there's going to have to be a plan B at some point. Now, McCarthy's and his allies are trying to buy time. Um, look, I, I, I also don't think the question also becomes how long does McCarthy have? There are a lot of people that certainly want McCarthy to become speaker, but not at the expense of the institution and, and not at the expense of the party's credibility when it comes to these rules and, and, and supporting concessions that could cripple the party's leadership from the get-go. So, look, there's going to have to be a resolution at some point, but there also has to be an acknowledgement that the, the you know the, the it seems like the rebels, the nihilists, the opponents are more intent on, on opposing this for the long haul opposing McCarthy in particular, then the supporters of McCarthy are willing to extend this out indefinitely. All right. Meanwhile, looking ahead to the next election cycle, which is what we always do, uh, some interesting rumblings on the Senate front. We've talked about how tough the Senate map is going to be for Democrats in 2024. We saw that Debbie Stabenow has preemptively announced she's not going to seek reelection two years from now. Uh, Michigan, could plausibly potentially be a pickup opportunity in an open seat, depending on who each party nominates. Obviously, candidate quality, that's something that we talked about a lot in recent months, Josh. But it's sort of interesting. I wonder, might uh, Secretary Pete Buttigieg hop on a private jet and go to his new quote-unquote home state? Now that there's a Senate seat that's going to be open, uh, and I feel like there's some other people on that bench in that state that would be interested on the Democratic side, Republican side, uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, things did not go well statewide, to put it mildly, for the GOP uh, this past cycle. What do you make of that announcement and that upcoming open seat in at least theoretically a swing state? So Michigan has always been something of a Lucy in the football state for Republicans, with the notable exception of 2016 and Donald Trump's uh, victory there. But the Republicans have always, not in 2022, but have always come really close. They always are putting a lot of money in the state. Uh, but they've they've in many, many recent elections come up just short despite uh, high expectations. So, um, you know, John James, the, the newly elected congressman who we all saw today, if you were watching the, the, the House floor who nominated McCarthy on the seventh ballot, he's the, the top, top uh, candidate that Republicans would love to have. Um, but. You know, I don't know if he wants to run after just being elected to the House. And, and I, I think Republicans are going to have some primary issues, as, as, as they've yep. had in, in recent elections. Oh, Peter, start- Peter Meyer's available. I'd point that out. Um, and he lost his seat because of uh, stupid Republican decisions and Democratic meddling. I would throw his name out there. Ronna McDaniels from Michigan, if she's looking for an exit strategy uh, at some point in RNC chair, that's a whole other level of the Republican infighting. Uh, that could be interesting. So it's just one to keep an eye on. In these early days. Meanwhile, quickly, Josh, Arizona, Ruben Gallego, a Democrat congressman, 
he is taking additional steps, Politico reports, to build a Senate campaign where he's bringing in people from successful campaigns, Mark Kelly's campaign, Raphael Warnock, John Fetterman. Looks like he's building the apparatus to take on Kirsten Cinema, who's now an independent. And that dynamic, at least in theory, should very dramatically benefit the Republicans if they nominate someone remotely palatable, if there's a Democrat against an independent who's Kirsten Cinema against a fairly popular Republican. I mean, that would be, you would think, an eminently gettable seat for the Republicans. Yeah, he is uh, saying he sees Kirsten Cinema's independent uh, party switch, and he's raising her. Uh, Demo- he's not. He's calling her bluff. He's saying it's not going to deter him from running as a Democrat uh, in in that Senate campaign. And look, I, I think that the National Democratic Party apparatus, from the White House to the Democratic uh, Senatorial Campaign Committee, are going to have to first decide: Do you endorse the incumbent, Senator Cinema? Or do you support the Democrat, uh, which could be Gallego, could be someone else? Uh, my, my hunch is that, uh, especially if cinema isn't polling uh, particularly well, that Democrats are going to get behind whoever their nominee is, and cinema may just not run for re-election. Cinema, so her whole strategy is to, to buy possible. time. It's possible, or she might run, uh, or even if she doesn't, and the Republicans nominate someone acceptable against a, a harder core progressive like Gallego. I mean. That could all be good news for the Republicans unless they manage to blow it, which they might because of the Republicans. Josh Krasauer, got to run. Talk to you again soon on The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. I'm Guy Benson, and it's time for Woke Tales. So there's a controversy in Northern Virginia at Thomas Jefferson High School where Virginia Attorney General Jason Meares in the Yunkin administration has confirmed he will be investigating the high school after students were allegedly not notified of their national merit recognitions until after important deadlines for college scholarships had passed, with the AG calling the situation unlawful, this according to Fox 5 in D.C., The story quotes a woman named Shauna Yashar, who recently discovered that her son was not told he was among the nation's top 3% of students. That parent said that they were told teachers ended up dropping certificates about this achievement unceremoniously on students' desks about a month after special deadlines for National Merit Scholars. She said that when she confronted the director of student services, about this by phone, he allegedly told her that student leaders underplayed the recognition because they didn't want to hurt the feelings of other students who weren't being honored. Fairfax County Public Schools recently adopted a new strategy, quote, equal outcomes for every student without exceptions. Let me just say, that is crazy. There's no such thing as equal outcome for every student. That's not a thing. Equal opportunity is something to strive for. Equal outcome is not possible. It's not moral. It's not right. You end up limiting people's potential and driving everything down toward a lower common denominator. And even then you won't achieve it. It is such a terrible idea, especially at a high school that has been held in such high regard until... As we've seen a lot in Virginia, the woke stuff started to really take over and clamp down in recent years. A big part of the reason why Glenn Youngkin won that election in 2021. They didn't inform students that they were 
National Merit Scholars in the top 3% of the country because they were afraid that other students would have their feelings hurt because they hadn't achieved that same thing. And the whole goal, apparently, according to Fairfax County Public Schools, is equal outcome and the new mission statement and strategy for Fairfax County Public Schools is now, quote, equal outcomes for every student without exceptions. Absolutely disgraceful. Actively hurting people because of, like, feelings and feel-goodery and sensitivity. It's absolute nonsense. And so Governor Glenn Youngkin has gotten involved. In fact, he fired off a letter to Miaris requesting an investigation. He wrote, in part, I am stunned by news reports alleging that information about national merit awards, as determined by student PSAT scores, was withheld from students at Thomas Jefferson High School for science and technology until after important deadlines for college scholarships had passed. I believe this failure may have caused material harm to those students and their parents and that this failure may have violated the Virginia Human Rights Act. And then he goes on to specify a bit further. This is an important matter, the governor wrote. I believe no one can deny the need for transparency, truthfulness, and accountability in this situation. I appreciate your attention to this issue. That was his letter to his attorney general. And then subsequently, the attorney general said, yes, we are on it. There's an investigation to which I say, good. What a joke this is. And generally, I'm not a fan of like the government interfering and stuff. But if this is what schools are going to do. In this kind of disgraceful way, it is absolutely the appropriate role of the state government to go in and protect the students who have actually earned these honors. Standards need to exist. There are exceptional people. There are below average people. There are average people. You can't just try to make them all the same. And actually telling some of the exceptional people that they're not allowed to know that they're exceptional based on their own Achievements because of how other people might feel. What a crock. And this is right in Yunkin's wheelhouse as well. So I'm glad that the state is on it. And if the Democrats are running the state of Virginia, they wouldn't be. Right? This would just, this would be given a thumbs up or maybe sort of like a side eye, like, I don't know about that, but we're not going to push too hard because these are their sort of education bureaucracy allies. So this is an example of the Yonkin administration looking out for families and students and speaking truth in their own way and demanding accountability from these bureaucrats and the people making these types of decisions. I would also just briefly note, I saw a new poll out today, VCU. Back in July in this same poll, Glenn Yonkin had a decent approval rating. He was at plus 11 overall. He's now at plus 20 on job approval in the state of Virginia, Commonwealth. 52% approved, 32% disapprove. So less than a third of Virginians disapprove this governor, a majority approve of him. And he's not governing as a mealy mouth moderate. He is governing as a conservative. Now, he's good at framing his issues, picking his fights, modulating. I think this is smart. This is the path to success for Republicans. And he's proving it. This is a state that has voted Democrat for president, I think, every time since 04, if memory serves. This is not a red state. This is a bluish-purple state, and here's a conservative Republican governing smartly, and he's at plus 20 on job approval with majority support on issues like education, crime, and inflation. 
the biggest issues that should have driven the midterm elections. Just putting that out there. And good for Glenn Youngkin. I know this is a small battle at one school, but the stakes are broader than just this one minor skirmish and this one particular fact pattern. This mentality has to be fought. And he's doing his part. The Guy Benson Show returns after this break. Please stay with us. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day on demand. I mentioned this the other day that I was going to tackle with more finality, perhaps, the George Santos scandal. We brought this to your attention before the holidays. I read to you from that New York Times story that really blew the cover off of many lies that the newly elected Republican congressman, although technically not a congressman just yet because no one's been sworn in, but the congressman-elect from New York, the 3rd District, Long Island, who had lost a tight race in 2020 in that district and then ran again and won by eight or so points this year. And we had him on the show after he won. Historic victory in some respects. I had met him once or twice, didn't know much about him. I thought in our conversation here on the air, he did well, acquitted himself well. And then it turns out that there was a massive failure of the opposition research arm of both parties, frankly, I think the Democrats were just convinced that they could run against Trump, tying him to Trump, talking about abortion. And that was their playbook. And they didn't bother to actually scrutinize the actual human being that they were running against. Because if they had, they probably would have discovered that he has made up a lot of things about his past. I mean, a lot to the point that you actually wonder what, if anything, is true that he said. And I take no pleasure in saying any of this. I was excited that there was the first openly gay Republican elected to Congress ever who ran as an openly gay candidate and won for the first time. That had never happened before. Seemed like a pretty reasonable guy. Based on his platform, we aligned on a number of things. So this is disappointing that he has become a laughingstock. And a pariah. And on some human level, I guess you feel a little bit bad for the guy, but not too bad. Like, there's very little sympathy because he brought this on himself. He didn't have to lie about all this stuff. He didn't have to fabricate huge swaths of his biography. He made a choice to do that. He made a choice to make things up. And it's just like the list goes on and on and on. The animal charity, the claim that he and his company lost multiple people at the Pulse nightclub shooting, the thing that he said about his mother dying from 9-11, even though she died many years later and the link is tenuous. I mean, you just go down the list. The colleges he said he attended, the companies he said he worked for, all of it, basically. He made decisions as an adult seeking public office, and it took a while, but those decisions caught up with him. Now, fortunately for him, they caught up with him after he was elected to the Congress. But they caught up with him nevertheless. 
And he's done a few interviews. We've invited him on this show. He indicated to me that he'd be willing to do so. Have not heard back. His interview with Tulsi Gabbard filling in for Tucker Carlson, what was it, last week, did not go well for him. She held him to account. And I think the point that Tulsi was making in that interview was, if you have lied about all of these things over and over again, why should anyone believe anything that you say ever? Like, doesn't basic honesty and integrity, just as foundational matters, shouldn't those be significant? And how on earth do you pass muster on those fronts? And he really was stammering and didn't have much of an answer. Right, the first posture was a lawyer putting out a statement saying, oh, it's sort of outrageous, attacking the liberal media. And then ultimately he kind of shrugged and said, okay, yes, I did lie about a number of these things. I'm sorry. Some of this stuff is out of context. Some of it needs to be explained. It's too complicated. It was just a whole hodgepodge of excuses after he was cornered. And it's been a very bad, embarrassing look, and it's indefensible. So I'm not going to defend him. However, the question that's been asked over and over again in recent days is what should happen to him? I've seen a number of people saying that, especially Democrats, he should be expelled from the House. He should resign. And I'm not so sure about that. Again, I have no interest in defending the conduct, the mendacity, the serial prevarications. I mean, it's pathological. Right? I'm not here to carry a brief for George Santos at all. And I'll admit that I've chuckled at some of the memes that have been made about him and flying around online, one of which was they should make him Speaker of the House because, according to his resume, he's already been Speaker of the House. Right? So, like, he's going to be the object of some ridicule, and he brought it on himself. But as for this argument that he must step aside and cannot serve in Congress, it's unconscionable. He, he lied to the voters. He lied to the people. I mean, is that a disqualifying thing at this point? Under the standards that have been set recently, like the recent rules of the road, according to the opposition party, the party predominantly that's calling for him to step aside. Now, obviously, you've gotten some Republicans criticizing him, local Republicans on Long Island suggesting They will not be nominating him again. They don't want to nominate him again in 2024. I think ultimately the consequences for lying to voters should be adjudicated by those voters. Now, look, let me just say as an aside, not just a minor parenthetical, an important one. If it turns out that he committed crimes, different story. Then the calculus changes. You can't have someone, even though it's a swing district, And that seat could go to the other party, and it's a very, very tight margin in the House, as we're seeing every single day. You can't have someone who's, let's say, you know, indicted or convicted of crimes. Right? That, I think, should be a pretty bright line. And I will point out that there are credible allegations of crimes that Santos appears to have admitted to, at least one crime in Brazil, where authorities are saying we want to reopen a check fraud case. Back when he was in his late teens, I think, early 20s, the allegation is Santos committed check fraud to go buy himself fancy shoes. Now, that's not necessarily what I'm talking about here. What I'm more talking about, or at least referencing, is the questions that are swirling around Santos and his money. Because based on the reporting and the revelations that have come out, 
he was recently, in recent years, a deadbeat tenant not paying his rent with no money to his name, apparently, or very, very little money. And landlords were trying to get him to pay his rent. He wasn't doing it. The most recent job, I believe, that people could nail down that he actually held was at this sort of shady company. He was making around fifty dollars or $55,000 all in. And then all of a sudden, he had, like, millions. He was throwing around hundreds of thousands of dollars, campaign loans to himself, campaign contributions to others. At least one of those contributions was tied back or linked to his home address, where it turns out he doesn't live. This was his listed home address. New York Times went and knocked on the door. The people who live there have no idea who he is. So there is a possibility, and I think these are questions that need to be looked at, that there is some very fishy stuff when it comes to his finances, which could be criminal. I don't know. I'm not going to speculate. I'm just saying if it turns out that there is criminal wrongdoing, then the point I'm making changes. But if he is, quote, unquote, just caught in a bunch of lies to the voters in his district in New York, then it's up to the voters in the district of New York to decide whether or not he can remain their congressman next time he's up. He's duly elected. And I've made this point before, and I want to flesh it out just a little bit here. Lying to voters, including in egregious ways, has not been a cause for any serious effort to boot any number of people out of their seats that they've won. Right? Elizabeth Warren advanced her career through what I would simply call ethnic fraud. She claimed that she was a Native American. She's not a Native American. She was never a Native American, but she used that claim to climb the ranks of the law school professor track and climb that ladder to the very top, tenured at Harvard Law, at which point she dropped the whole fairy tale, stopped listing herself as a Native American. This, to me, suggests and points to intent, mens rea. She knew what she was doing. And yet, that all got exposed. The Democrats circled the wagons, so to speak. They defended her. She won that election, and she's won her subsequent elections. People of Massachusetts said, okay, she lied a bunch to get to where she was at Harvard. Now she's lying further. It's all come unglued, and they just didn't really care. They wanted a Democrat in that Senate seat, so they got one. She's out on the late-night shows all the time, these Democrat operative comedy shows. She's a progressive in good standing. Richard Blumenthal, another example that I gave, this man for his adult life lied over and over again about serving in a war that he didn't. Lied about serving in Vietnam. Now, George Santos seems to have lied about everything imaginable, but at least he appears to have avoided stolen valor, which is, I would say, just about the most dishonorable type of lie you can imagine. But that's what Blumenthal did. Telling people that he was a Vietnam veteran who served in Vietnam over and over again throughout his career, got elected to other positions, was running for the Senate. This was blown up by the New York Times in 2010. The spring of 2010, a few months later, the people of Connecticut, deep blue Connecticut, saw fit to elect him to the Senate. 
because ultimately they didn't care that he lied about serving in Vietnam. They cared about having a Democrat in that seat to vote for Democrats and along with the agenda all the time. They didn't care that he was a habitual liar and someone who lied specifically about his military service, which is extra gross. Sheldon Whitehouse, maybe there's something in the water among these Democrats in the Northeast and in New England. Sheldon Whitehouse, the conspiracy theorist from Rhode Island, he lied on multiple occasions regarding this all-white social club, this elite club that he belonged to. Mr. Social Justice was in an all-white, is in an all-white club. I don't know if they've even diversified yet. But he lied about that. Senator White Club, as I was calling him, Senator White Club, lied about that. And it was like a two-day story that very few people covered, like Fox and a few other outlets. There was no groundswell from the woke people and the bastions of truth. You know how, oh, the truth matters. Country over party and all this other stuff. It's all a joke. They don't believe it. If they've got someone, and by the way, Elizabeth Warren would have been replaced with a Democrat. Richard Blumenthal would be replaced with another Democrat. Same with Sheldon Whitehouse. It's not like this would flip the seat to the other party, which could be the case, by the way, in George Santos's district. These are safe seats. And still, there's been no big movement based on these really high-profile, big lies to voters to replace any of those people. Richard Blumenthal sits on that Judiciary Committee a few seats away from White House, and they pontificate, and they sneer, and they snipe at people sitting in judgment of people that they don't like. Those guys... And then, of course, there's Joe Biden, our president. Let's talk about him, shall we? Next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show, we're talking about the George Santos lying scandal. And I was turning to President Joe Biden, his history with dishonesty. And this is not whataboutism. Like defending Santos. What about these Democrats? This is aboutism. Directly relevant. So let's discuss Joe Biden, who has been lying and fabricating for his entire career. It's almost like his brand. People just sort of chuckle and smile and roll their eyes. There goes Joe again, making stuff up. And some of it's really small and silly and frivolous, and some of it is less so. Right? The guys lied about his bio, his resume, his academic background. We did a whole monologue about this months ago. I did a whole piece about it at townhall.com. I saw Chris Hayes at MSNBC was trying to draw a distinction between Biden and Santos, saying, quote, there's a line between normal politician BSing and con man serial lying, suggesting that Biden was sort of the former, Santos the latter. But just two out of dozens of examples that I would put forward from Biden, the man lied about the individual who was involved in that tragic, fatal crash that killed Biden's first wife and his young daughter at the time. Biden repeatedly smeared the truck driver as a drunk driver. I mean, it was sad enough. It was tragic enough. The guy was not driving drunk. The guy's family begged Biden for years to stop slandering their loved one. But I guess Biden decided that the story was a little bit sadder and a little bit more of an opportunity for him to be outraged and to preen by inventing a fact about the other person involved in the accident. 
So he was a drunk driver in the imagination of Joe Biden, and he said it over and over again. That's not normal politician BSing. That's something much more, I think, disturbing and pathological. Biden also has lied about the death of his son, Beau, who he has said repeatedly died in Iraq, which he didn't. He died in the United States of America years after he left Iraq from cancer. And I know Biden has tried to sort of tie it to burn pits in Iraq. There's no actual evidence that there's a connection there. His son was a military lawyer in Iraq. But he hasn't sort of suggested that he might have died because of Iraq. He has said that he died in Iraq, sometimes in front of military audiences. It's just not true. This is someone making things up, easily falsifiable things, about the deaths of members of his own immediate family. That is pathological. That is very, very, very weird to me. And then you add it to everything else that Joe Biden has lied about. Just some of them, just total head scratchers. Again, it's, it's his shtick. It's his brand. Joe the fabricator. Joe the embellisher. Joe the plagiarist. That's another one. He plagiarized like multiple pages from a term paper in law school. And that guy became a U.S. senator, kept lying, became vice president, kept lying, became president. Maybe George Santos is looking at Joe Biden and being like, well, there's a hero. Shoot for the stars, George. You never know where it'll get you. So I'm not interested, is my point, in lectures or sermons from the Democratic Party about lying to voters and how someone cannot serve in high office if they've lied to voters, which George Santos absolutely has done. Not interested in that. If I lived in his district, sadly, I have to say, I would not vote for him again. I would not vote in a primary for him. I would not vote for him in a general, Santos, in 2024. Democrats certainly aren't going to whiff on this one again. In 2024, I think Republicans would be wise probably to start recruiting someone else ASAP for that seat. But unless there's a crime element to this, Santos was duly elected. Yes, he did it on a pack of lies, it looks like. But that hasn't stopped really anyone from advancing their career recently. That's the standard. Whether that's good or bad for the country, what that says about us, I mean, another story. But that's the standard. Those are the rules. So that's where I come down on this. Not a very satisfying place to land, is it? And yet, that's where we land, at least on this show. The Guy Benson Show, back after this. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Happy Hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Friday Eve here on the program, first broadcast week of the new year. Happy New Year. Glad to have you all here. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, 5 to 6 Eastern, our final hour is this happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is refreshing and delicious and alcoholic, so please drink responsibly, 21 plus only. TheLongDrink.com can find out more there, including where it's sold near you. It is growing in popularity, just exploding. TheLongDrink.com. 
Here at the show, our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter and Instagram. And or follow me personally on those same platforms at Guy P. Benson. I'll be hosting the big show this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, 5 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Part of that four-person hosting crew. Looking forward to that. Also, a few more TV obligations next week as well that we will tell you about in due course. Joining us now, Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, head of research at Bustle, and the chief romance and baby correspondent here at The Guy Benson Show. And, Jesse, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you all. Did you have a nice holiday, a good little break? Did you do anything exciting or fun, or was it mostly quiet with husband and Cleo? Mostly quiet with husband and Cleo. We uh, went out of town for three or four nights with another family that has a baby around the same age because you can't inflict this on somebody who's child-free or even really has older, you know, it's like, so we found similar victims and we went out to Long Island um, and it was a lot of fun for New Year's Eve. What did you guys do? We just went to the neighbor's house and they throw a big fun bash every year and they had a full bar with a bartender, which is great. And to me, it's the best thing because you get to go hang out with people. A lot of our neighbors were there as well and, and other friends have some good booze, have a fun time, and then you just walk, walk across the street, the street yeah. sort of stumble home whenever you feel like it, and get into your own bed, and you wake up on New Year's Day in your own bed. To me, that's a mm-hmm. win. It's Yeah, it's a huge win. I mean, we also age ourselves with these comments, you know, the discussion about, like, does midnight matter? No, of course it doesn't matter, but I think I only started thinking that at, like, 33, maybe? See, so I'm going to dissent on that one i am not the type of person who is like oh who cares if i make it to midnight i'm gonna make it to midnight i'm gonna make it beyond midnight i think i probably got home around 1 30 on new year's eve but i also was day, not guy. eager <laughs> but the thing is i didn't want to go out like i remember in my 20s planning with friends and coordinating yeah. things and being like oh well this bar has this cover charge and the package for New Year's includes these things and these types mm-hmm. of drinks and, like, figuring out how long and how late you could go out and how much bang for your buck you could get on the drinking and all of that. I am way past that. No interest. Yeah. No, that's uh, definitely a thing of the major path. I mean, I, I grew up <laughs> in New York City, and I remember the first year my parents let me go to Times Square to watch the ball drop, and now there are people wearing diapers and men with machetes. So I'd definitely rather be at home. Well, or at okay, the since, since we're going down this path, I just want to say I've spent a few New Year's Eves in New York City. In fact, the millennium, I was in New York City at a house party with my family. It was actually really fun. We all went to a movie that evening. It was sort of fancy, and then we ordered pizza at 2 o'clock in the morning, and the world did not end when all the clocks and calendars switched to the year 2000, so that was a big relief. That was cool, definitely memorable. I was, what, maybe like a freshman or sophomore in high school. What I have never done and have no interest in doing is the Times Square thing. It does not appeal to me at all like standing there for hours often in the cold with a bunch of strangers where it's got to be very difficult even just to go and use the bathroom if you need to just to watch 
the ball drop with a countdown. That's just like, I know some people think it's great and they love doing it. It's a tradition. Everyone watches it on TV. I just, I, I you would have to pay me so much money to do that for my New Year's Eve, personally. Hmm. I did it for free, but I was young and impressionable. <laughs> yes, now you're older and wiser. We both are. Well, at least and we're both older. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Who knows about wiser? I, I do want to talk about wisdom here. And I want to talk about what is happening and has been happening this week in the House of Representatives without getting into any of the, you know, intricate details and machinations and the negotiations and all the little twists and turns. As a Democrat, I know how I felt, and I've been very clear about that here on the show and in social media and elsewhere. I know how I felt as a conservative watching all of this play out as a Democrat and a liberal what is your mood? Like, let's do a vibe check with Jesse Tarloff here on this Thursday based on what we've seen Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. The vibe is good. Um, I, so I got two distinct vibes. My partisan vibe is like I've never done ecstasy or anything, but I imagine that it's like that, that if we had to lose the house, which – I really wish we hadn't, and then also I'm still mad about this George Santos debacle. Um, so that was clearly a seat that we didn't have to lose. But if we had to lose, um, I love seeing a unified party. I love seeing a party that has it together, um, and especially to see the uh, the folks who took it away from us struggling to uh, to come to what seems like a foregone decision. I mean, the guy moved into the office, obviously, quite prematurely. Um, so my partisan mood is excellent. My democracy mood is a little less on ecstasy. You know, like, I do think that it's important that we have sitting members of Congress. I think that these things do make us look bad. Um, I get it that a lot of Republicans are trying to say, you know, this is all okay. Democracy is messy and blah, blah, blah. It's a complete you-know-what show, right? Um and so I don't particularly love that on a on Yeah, a larger, I mean, like the thing is, yeah. and I've been saying this for a couple of days, it doesn't really bother me that there's no speaker yet and that the House hasn't been sworn in yet and it is a messy thing. It's like, uh, fine. It, sometimes this has happened in the past, multiple ballots, multiple days. I'm not like freaking out or clutching my pearls about it. I do feel like at some point there has to be an actual plan and a point to this stuff where it actually gets resolved. And I do have concerns about what this foretells when it comes to, you know, trying to govern for the next two years. That's more my concern, less sort of the, oh, no, there's no speaker yet. I'm not really in that category, at least not yet. Jesse, I do want to ask you, though, there is unity on the Democratic side. Every single ballot on and on and on, day after day, 212 votes for Hakeem Jeffries every single time. And often it's easier to keep a minority, especially in the House, together. We've seen that from both parties. I do wonder how you feel about your party unanimously voting over and over again for an unrepentant election denier as their leader in the House. I, I don't see it that way. Um, so I think that election denialism really has taken on a new meaning in the context of what Donald Trump um, and I forget exactly how many uh, conservative uh, Republican Congress people voted against certifying the election. Um, but I don't think saying things like Donald Trump is an, an 
legitimate president in any way compares to what's what has gone on with the Republican Party. So I have no problem with it whatsoever. And I think has no problem. So like leader. you kind of just you don't even wish that he no, hadn't spread it. conspiracies. Don't say it. It's silly. And we know that he won the election and you can investigate all sorts of things. What was the Russian influence? Blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, you have to stand up there. You lost the election. This guy won. It shocked people on both sides of the aisle that he was able to pull this off. No, it's it's not productive. It's not good for democracy, but it just doesn't even rank on any scale. In comparison to what's been gone, what's going on in terms of election denialism from the right. I mean, Carrie Lake is still on Steve Bannon's show saying that she's the duly elected governor of Arizona. Like that's I know. election. No, she denialism. she's no, it's crazy. She's she's the Stacey Abrams of the right these days. Yeah. Um, no, I, and I mean. and if the Republicans do what the Democrats did to Stacey Abrams, Carrie Lake will become a very rich, very influential person and get nominated for another race to go potentially lose. Uh, and I think that that was absolute election denialism from Stacey Abrams. She was celebrated for it. Hakeem Jeffries said some crazy conspiratorial things that I think are dangerous for democracy. I'm not saying it's on the same scale as what we saw leading up to January 6th, for example. Obviously not. It's not at that end of the spectrum, but it's on the spectrum somewhere. And I think that we should not be encouraging or empowering people who do that sort of thing. That's exactly what the Democrats have done. They didn't have to pick someone who would engage in that sort of reckless stuff, but they have, and they've stood behind him, and I'm just noticing that. Okay, well, it's your job to notice, um, and that's important, but I really don't think that anyone associates, quote, election denialism with Hakeem Jeffries. I, I, I do. Don't, I mean, as a Democrat, I, I don't think that they're – I could not name someone – um, who well, it's because they have different that. rules for their own side. That's why. Like, it's like, oh, it's it's different when your own side does it, right? I think that's probably well, no. Why. If Hakeem Jeffries had done something, and granted, we didn't have a you know a failed candidate like Hillary Clinton didn't lead an insurrection and ask people to hang uh, Tim Kaine, which would have been quite brutal. Though I guess she wasn't in office. You know what I mean? The circumstances obviously can't be. Yeah, uh, she only lied about it and called Trump illegitimate and all that, right? So it's it's several notches down, but it's still. Very bad. And like, come on. I I just if you want to say people shouldn't do this, I'm on board with you. And I think honestly, what happened on January 6th has really changed how people feel about questioning elections and how you can do that loosely. People won't do that anymore. But they're just maybe. I mean, I don't know, because many Democrats voted against certifying Republican elections. Bush, Trump. I mean, a bunch of them did it. Maybe they won't in the future, but they have done so in the past. It's interesting. I guess we'll potentially find out maybe in 2025 if things go well, from my perspective. I want to ask you about the current president, Jesse Tarloff. He is going to the border, it sounds like, finally. He's been resisting it, saying he has other better things to do. Now he's going to go down there. I guess that's uh, good on some level. Uh, I'm not really sure if it's going to change anything on substance. I know they've rolled out some of these new plans that they're talking about. But what do you make of this change this shift from the White House on visiting the border. Is this maybe a post midterm triangulation to try to blunt some of what's coming from the House Republicans on the border stuff? What do you make of this? What's your read on this? I think it became a political necessity. 
right, where it was maybe like a nice to do. Now it's a must do. Um, I think doing this all this week while everyone is paying attention to what's going on with Kevin McCarthy um, is obviously intentional. Um, no one's really paying attention. It's obviously getting coverage. You know, people are saying, oh, he made this speech. These are the new policies he's going to go down. And he's going to El Paso, right? Um, but it just became it's buried, something that right? It's, it's buried compared to the other news. So there's there's some jujitsu happening there. Yeah, a hundred percent. It was not something that they wanted to do. Otherwise, they would have done it before. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't take you know the win on it? No, it's a good thing. Um, I hope that it's a fruitful visit. I think the new policies seem pretty good. Um, it's basically another version of Title 42, right, which is uh, what the GOP was adamant that we had to keep in place. And we can't forget the fact um, that a bunch of moderate Democrats, especially in border states, played a key role in this. You know, he's been getting hammered internally. Even people like um, Jayapal, one of the most progressive members of the Democratic caucus, said he should go to the border. So there was nowhere really to turn anymore. Well, you've got you've got the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, now saying he's going to bus a bunch of these illegal immigrants in Colorado. He's like, we're full. We don't have any more room. We're going to ship them off to New York City. And when you've got those tactics now being used by Democrats and sending, you know, from one Democratic jurisdiction to another, obviously, and I don't think this has been a partisan problem for the last two years. It's been a serious problem. But at some point, to your point, I think, you kind of reach the end of the rope of saying this is just all a big Republican stunt, which in my mind it has never been. But when you've got, as you said, Democrats sounding the alarm on this and changing policies in their cities and states because of it, at some point it kind of becomes something that you at least have to pretend to care about, I guess. Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to pretend to care. I, I do think that Biden cares about this, and I know that yeah. comments that he's made about, like, I have, you know, other priorities have been turned into, like, this doesn't matter at all. But that's just not true. And the parties have always prioritized certain aspects of caring about the border differently. Like, this idea, you don't care unless you show up, like, that you physically have to go there. Like, do well, you really no, think I think, I, think I, I, I don't think he cares. Like, I really don't think he cares. And it's not because he hasn't physically shown up to do a photo op like Kamala Harris did. I don't think she cares either. I think it's, you know, actions speak louder than words. And it's the policies in this case that are the actions, the meaningful actions. And you had this absolute debacle in terms of national security, in terms of national sovereignty, humanitarian mess with people dying. I mean, they did not change their policies at all. That's the root of the allegation that he doesn't care. And I hope that he might start to care a little bit more. Maybe he'll go down there and learn some things and actually hear from people who've been experiencing this disaster that he's responsible for firsthand for two years. I think it's maybe a teachable moment. I hope he's actually willing to go down there in good faith. I have my doubts, but I guess we'll see. We have to leave it there, though, because we're up on a break. We've gone way long. Jessica Tarlaw, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, head of research at Bustle, and Chief Romance and Baby Correspondent. So many titles here at The Guy Benson Show. Jesse, again, Happy New Year. We'll talk soon. Happy New Year. Thanks a lot, Guy. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Fox News alert to bring you real quick here. They are on their 10th ballot now in the Speaker saga. And the McCarthy mutiny continues. 
it's already failed for the Republicans. There's already 10 votes against McCarthy on the Republican side, so it will have to go to at least an 11th ballot. Whether that happens tonight or later is unclear. There might be an adjournment coming up, but this vote's going to take a while. It's underway, but it's already been a fail along the exact same lines, basically, as what we've been seeing for the last two days. However, I did hear from a source that Chip Roy was close to getting a deal with McCarthy allies. He's been negotiating, and once that deal is struck, if it's struck, and I see Jake Sherman from Punchbowl News is reporting that there could be a written deal by tonight, then that could peel off as many as 10 of these holdouts, potentially. There's another issue that Jake Sherman notes, which is there are a number of Republicans with health issues or like a wife gave birth, people who cannot stay in town through the weekend. And so they might have to adjourn through the weekend and they would have to vote for that. But they're losing members. Ken Buck, for example, has already gone back to Colorado for a doctor's appointment. So the math is going to be complicated here to even potentially adjourn if people have to go home for medical and significant personal issues. So that's another curveball in all of this as the process continues to unfold. We're watching it on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier on today's edition of The Guy Benson Show, we caught up with Josh Holmes, political operative, Republican strategist, podcaster extraordinaire, and ruthless. Here's part of that always fun, always incisive conversation with Josh Holmes. At some point, you have to do those things. And I am worried that we could see not just a squandered two years, but a humiliatingly squandered two years. Well, this is the great dichotomy between stated conservatism and actual conservatism. As somebody who spent 20 years in and around this kind of stuff, let me give you two examples, right? There there are two, really only two bills that absolutely have to pass Congress in any calendar year. One is an appropriations bill that keeps the lights on, your Social Security checks flowing, and like the basic functions of government, like defense, rolling. And the other is, is a debt ceiling when it's necessary, because you default on your credit, all of a sudden the, the markets collapse and, and people with 401ks entirely evaporate. Like those two things need to happen. What happens when you have a united Republican governance as we had in like a 2011, for example, is that you have Republicans by and large with the ability to, to drive a hard bargain with unity and in a position that Democrats have to negotiate with. If you can't pass a funding bill or a debt ceiling out of the House of Representatives without Democratic votes, if you can't do that, the cost of admission for each Democratic vote is exponential. If it costs mm-hmm. you 10 votes, it's a couple of billion dollars. If it costs you 20 votes, we're talking $40 billion. If it talk, costs you 30, 40 votes, if, if the majority of your conference can't keep the lights on in the government, it's going to cost you $500 billion in order to get that done. And that's a non-negotiable thing. You have to do that. So Which only, by the way, further infuriates the base that already feels like the establishment betrays them. And it's just like this, this spiral, right? Because the, the same people will fundraise off the same outrage – 
hoping that people don't fully understand what the dynamics are that are driving some of these outcomes. And I, we're getting ahead of ourselves. It might not come to this, but based on the first couple of days, the conversation we're having is not an unreasonable one. Well, they're the ones that cost you $500 billion in taxpayer dollars, right? I mean, if you end up with a united government, a united Republican front in the House of Representatives, you can actually write a pretty conservative funding bill, one that you know not everybody's going to agree with, but one that sticks within our means, certainly, and is far better than anything a Democrat would write. But the minute the, that, that you have defections out of principle, quote unquote, then you open up that to billions of dollars of extraneous Green New Deal type nonsense. Well, and, and the idea, Josh, the just to year. jump in here, the, the idea that there's going to be Republican, this is my fundamental worry, that there will be any Republican unity for the next two years after this performance, which is still ongoing, is, I think, an open question and opens the can of worms that you're describing. Very quickly, Josh, a minute left over in the other chamber. Your longtime boss, Mitch McConnell, he's the Republican leader. He was with the president down in Kentucky touting the bipartisan infrastructure bill. I know that angered some conservatives yesterday, but McConnell has just become the longest serving Senate leader, I believe, ever uh, as of this week. The left hates him. I understand why the left hates him. He's an effective conservative leader. The right elements of the right absolutely hate him, too, for other reasons. Just give us maybe a, a minute, like the elevator pitch for Mitch McConnell in your in your yeah, well, mind. Look- it, it, it's a heck of a, an accomplishment to be able to sit at the top of your conference through all the iterations of, you know, Bush and Obama and Trump and you know now into Biden and all the machinations and differences of the political parties over the years. But look, I, you know, the the the, the thing you're talking about lately is a perfect example. Um, it, the, the reason he appeared with Biden in Kentucky, which the Kentucky State Legislature unanimously passed. A resolution praising him for is because they fixed a, a problem that had been lasting for 30 years with the Brent Spence Bridge. My full interview with Josh Holmes available on our podcast, also on our website. The whole show every day on demand for free on that podcast. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. Producer Christine was eavesdropping a little bit on her daughter who was chatting on the phone with her friend, she heard something interesting that actually plays into a conversation we've had on this show multiple times. We'll give you that scoop right when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our website podcast, free every day. And we've spoken a little bit during home stretches this week about New Year's and sports and Christine's latest dramas here in 2023. But we would be remiss if we didn't look back just a little bit to Christmas because I was off last week. We haven't caught up as a team. We had a lovely Christmas at our house. Adam and I hosted my family, then Flew out a few days later to Colorado and spent some time out there with his family. Beautiful snowfall while we were there, like a foot of snow came down in Denver. I'd been having a little bit of snow envy, not like Buffalo-level snow, but just some snow. And it was not disruptive to our travels, thank goodness. We weren't flying southwest, sorry. Ooh. But we had a great time. And as we talked about earlier this hour with Jessica Tarloff, then we were home for New Year's over at the neighbor's house. It was good. Now, Christine... As a young daughter, so that's like another dynamic when it comes to Christmas in that household. 
And, Christine, I just want to check in on how Christmas went and, relatedly, something that you heard from Megan when she was on the phone with one of her friends. Well, as you know, Guy, in this home, Santa is still 100% very, very real. So uh, it was so nice, you know, to get all the presents under the tree and have her wake up super early. And she was so excited. She really got into it. We all had a lovely, lovely Christmas. Um, But last night, I hear her on the phone with, I believe, one of her cousins who may have said something that they question if Santa's real. And I'm kind of listening because I don't want to eavesdrop or say, but I just want to hear the conversations. And all of a sudden, I hear her go, no, I know Santa's definitely real. Because there is no way my parents could have afforded all those gifts that I got. (laughs) I almost fell over. (laughs) You're going to come rushing in, like, bust down the door. You're like, sweetie, I need you to look at my bank statements. Actually, mommy and daddy do pretty well. We're not saying that Santa isn't real. I I feel like you're getting almost defensive about it. I was so bummed because it's true, like, the big guy gets all the credit for everything. You know, we do have a couple presents from mommy and daddy, but still he gets all the credit. And here I am, especially the few days before, just running around like a crazy person. The night, two nights before Christmas, she comes home and she's telling me all about her Christmas party at school. And she said, yeah, the teacher went around and said, what's the one, one gift you want? And she goes, I raised my hand and I said, I want a cotton candy maker. And my heart dropped. I'm like, there's no cotton candy maker here. There was nothing on the list that said cotton candy maker that she sent to the North Pole. So I just scrambled, scrambled, finally found one of the last ones. And luckily... Well, isn't that – sorry, I'm I'm not a parent here, but that seems like maybe not the best incentive structure there. Like if you're going to have a list – and I'm fine, and we can do some earmuffs here for young children. If we're going to indulge the Santa thing, and I feel like this maybe needed to be the last Christmas on that. <laughs> we can bring Cat in for an intervention if we need to, Cat Tim, even tomorrow on this. But, you know, next year, what, it should be 10 Mm-hmm. Double digits next year. So I, I think that maybe it's it's we're getting there. But if you're going with the Santa thing, you write a letter to Santa, you have your list, that allows parents to also know what the list is. And I don't feel like you get to just sort of all of a sudden announce your deepest wish for Christmas that hasn't been actually communicated to Santa and then put your parents in a position to be scrambling. Like, I feel like I'd be like, oh, sweetie, did you write that down to Santa? Was that on your list to Santa? The the cotton candy maker? Because also cotton candy's gross and so bad for you. And she would say, well, no, it wasn't. And then you can say, oh, well, then don't expect to get it then because it's imp- it, wasn't on, it wasn't on the list. I, I don't feel like that is the cue to send you into a tizzy at the last minute to go buy something that if I had to make a prediction, we'll get very little use. It's already that you didn't even in ask the closet. For. It's already sitting it's in the already... closet. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so you... I wish that's the way my brain worked for Christmas, but I am just a crazy person. Like, I just want to make Christmas so special 
so yeah, that's not how I bet you Bobby would have been like, it's fine. Like he didn't say anything because he just knows how crazy I am with Christmas, not in general. Well, <laughs> but it was safe. I'm not going to say got it, it, but yeah, <laughs> you got it. You went and you found a cotton candy maker for this magical extra thing that she tacked on that wasn't on the list. And it's already sitting in a closet. Is it even out of the box yet? Has it been used once? One time, and I haven't seen her take it out. I mean, to be honest, almost all of her presents really haven't been used. Her favorite things so far were her AirPods from her grandmother. Not even anything from Santa or Mommy and Daddy. That's because that's a practical gift that can be used frequently. Yeah, like every day she uses it. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, that's – I feel like there's some things that can be learned for Christmas's future from Judgy Joyce from others. I, the, I, this is the first time I'm hearing about the cotton candy caper, and I just think, again, I'm I'm not here to – well, I am here to judge, let's be honest. But I, I think that it is maybe not the best precedent there to do that. And also, you have to think about, like, what the implications are for a gift. Is this something that will bring and spark joy in the moment and then also have a usefulness beyond, like, 20 minutes which it sounds like the cotton candy thing that she was so allegedly excited about. Really, she wasn't. It's like something that popped into a nine-year-old's head for a day, and she just blurted it out, and then you went running around on a wild goose chase for this thing. I just, I don't know why I'm trying to make this like a reasonable case. This is not about reason, obviously. Dan has a question. Yeah, I was always curious, Christine. Like, as a parent, I'm not a parent either, but when you wake up on Christmas Day and see your kid opening all these presents from Santa, how do you not get hurt when it's not from when you're not getting the credit for it? Like I would be devastated. If I found like a great present, you know, and like I wanted them to know it's from me. Like how do you deal with that? It'd be really hard, I feel like. We actually uh switched uh around how we did that because Dan, you're right, a couple years ago there was some fantastic yeah. gifts that Megan was getting and Santa was getting all the credit and Bobby mm-hmm. actually announced no more. Like, we get the amazing gift. And we don't even tell, you know, the grandparents to get the amazing gift. We get the amazing gift from mom and dad and then everything. So she did. She got a beautiful vanity that Bobby had to build a couple days before. Right. We talked about that. Yeah. So that was – but none of this was her favorite. Her favorite, like I said, were the AirPods. So I think also I probably really go overboard because I'm sure you're not surprised. But Judgy Joyce always seemed to be – inconvenienced by santa (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. bothered by the whole idea of having to do all of this i mean i once asked her if i could write my santa letter a little early and she literally sighed and said chris santa doesn't have time right now (laughs) so i mean she uh she was not wrong also (laughs) i love this demanding credit thing it's like the seinfeld episode of wanting credit for the big salad you guys wanted credit for the big presents with Megan, so you changed the Santa game a little bit in the house. And the other thing for me was, and this was something that tipped me off very early, and I confronted my mother about this directly and forced her to tell me the truth at age five. It was just interesting that Santa's handwriting was remarkably similar to handwriting with which I was quite familiar year round. That was just like another little detail. Uh, so if you want to keep the magic going for longer, and you've got a perceptive kid, then that's like something to to keep in mind. My parents did that too. They did 
they but they changed it after a while because I got suspicious and they did like scribbly letters like it was all just scribbly and weird. So I was like, oh, that is Santa's handwriting. It's different than my parents. <laughs> Santa's scribbly handwriting. Santa's drunk apparently. <laughs> Although that might lead Megan to be suspicious of her mother. Actually, now that I think about it, now I do want to say this: one of our big gifts this year under the tree, huge gift under the tree was from my in-laws, and it is, Christine, get ready. I know you're going to be very excited about this. A new vacuum cleaner. (gasps) Mm -hmm. And it's a Dyson. And, in fact, we saw it because it came and it had, like, all the Dyson decals, and it was, like, the return address was Dyson. So Adam (laughs) called his mom and was just like, hey, we got the vacuum cleaner. She's like, how do you know what it is? He's like, well, it's in the box. She's like, well, it could be a different thing. And we were like, nope. We know exactly what it is. That's exactly what it was. And apparently it's like top-of-the-line Dyson vacuum cleaner. Someone asked me which model it was, so I looked it up on the label and texted it over. They're like, oh, that that's like the gold standard. So, I, you know, since we've had a ridiculous, embarrassing amount of conversation on this show, in this segment in particular, about vacuum cleaners, I felt like I had to share with you that we got like the top-line Dyson. Da-da-da. So there's that. And? Do you love it? I don't know if it's out of the box yet. Oh, my gosh. We did throw away one of the old ones. We put it out on the street, and it was not broken. It was just, like, old and not that great. A big red vacuum cleaner. We put it out on garbage night, and someone was driving by, like, in an Audi and saw it and stopped. We had this on our camera like our doorbell camera stopped and put it right in the car and drove off so that vacuum cleaner now has a new home we have our own new vacuum cleaner i'm sure it'll be great i will never have an opinion on it because i will never touch it oh boy i vacuum almost every single day so i i need to know more details on this i bet you it's the 15 if i had to guess and guess what it has lights and it also has like the shadow thing where it shows you where the dust is that's how much it can pick up oh gosh i'm well, so jealous. i'm glad that you're excited about it the thing is you would get it you would use it once or twice decide it wasn't good enough and then throw it away and go buy another one. It'd be like your 17th. You're going to have more vacuum cleaners than they're going to have Speaker of the House votes. Just in the span of like a year or two. That's what this is going to be. That's that's the reality of it. And I know, Dan, you were in the market, I think, for a vacuum cleaner. So I would not necessarily take advice from you-know-who. But maybe you can, like, text Adam and see what he has to say about ours. Yeah, I was. I mentioned it to Christine, and I got a lot of responses of different ones to get. And I'm pretty sure that like high end one you got was on the list, but I don't really touch it as much either. That's more <laughs> the other half does. Um, but I would love to try it if, if I got a good one. But I think I'll I'll, I'll maybe not go with Christine's advice because it might be too expensive, and I'll get five. That's right. <laughs> and I don't know how she could recommend anything because she hates all of them. She gets all excited about them and then gives up on them and goes to the next one. So, all right, let's just call a moratorium now on vacuum cleaner talk for at least the next three to four months. We cannot start the new year with more vacuum talk. It's enough. I'm just I'm just saying it. We can't do it again. But there was news related to Christmas, so there it is. We got to go. Back here tomorrow for the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. We will talk to you then. Have a wonderful evening.
the Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.